Hello, this is the Black and Asian Therapist Network podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's interested in the internal psychological world from a Black and Asian perspective. My name is Eugene Ellis. I'm a psychotherapist and founder of Barton. These podcasts are a continuing conversation around the psychological life of Black and Asian people in the UK. Over the next few months, I'll be presenting UK Black and Asian therapists sharing their thinking and psychological concepts so as to support all therapists and mental health workers in their work with their Black and Asian clients. This is the fifth of eight podcasts where I'll present recordings of therapists who've given talks at Barton conferences over the years. The speaker for this podcast is Narendra Kaval. He spoke at the 2011 Barton conference. Narendra Kaval is a therapist, supervisor and trainer and currently based at the Centre of Psychoanalytical Studies at the University of Essex. He was involved with NASIAT, an intercultural therapy centre in London, from its inception in the early 80s, providing psychotherapy to different ethnic communities, as well as trying to put race and racism on the map of psychotherapy training. His work has taken him to Cape Town, South Africa, as a visiting senior lecturer, where he was involved in projects that examined the traumatic impact of apartheid and racism on communal life. His current research is in the psychodynamics of racism, working with these psychosocial processes in the consulting room and within organisations. In his talk, Narendra poses the question, what happens to the collective curiosity of the therapy profession around the area of race? What is the nature of racial trauma? And what are the therapeutic tasks when working with clients in this area. He talks about one of his clients whose father violently tried to scrub away his black skin when he was a child. His client was also the container for racist projections from the outside world. Narendra articulates that in trauma, instead of thinking about an event, people become the event. This presents challenges for the therapist to remain robust, remain thinking and curious, not feel overwhelmed, and not retaliate. This is Narendra Kaval. Okay, can I first uh, start by thanking Eugene to uh, uh, inviting me to um, share some of my ideas on the trauma of racial violence. Now, originally I was going to try and talk to a, a, a paper that I wrote some years ago on a patient that I worked with who was severely traumatized by racism. And I wanted to sort of extend that thinking into the area of curiosity and concern. What happens to the capacity to be thoughtful and curious when you've experienced a lot of racism? What happens to those faculties? And I'm kind of developing some thinking in that area at the moment. So this paper really is a kind of a sketch really of some of my thinking that I want to share with you, which incorporates some of that thinking I did earlier with this patient that I worked with and other experiences I've had. Um, with other patients and groups. But I also wanted to think with you, and perhaps we could do this in discussion groups, about what happens to the collective curiosity of our profession, the psychotherapists and the counselling profession. What happens to the curiosity and the capacity to think about race and racism? And I think Gloria and both Elaine has also touched on this as well, in terms of how do you contain this thinking? And this space, as I see it, is really a, a space to contain thoughts 
which are largely put on the margins of other conferences and other settings. And it's interesting why that happens. And I'm quite interested in what happens to the collective curiosity of our profession. What I want to do is just sketch out some thoughts about the trauma of racist hatred, what happens to curiosity, the capacity to be curious. Now, irrespective of one's ethnicity or colour of skin, the lived experience of race and racism is always present in subtle ways in the privacy of our daily thoughts, feelings, imaginations and dreams. Our clinical encounters will be no exception. How to understand its presence in the context of our patients' many pressing concerns is the difficult challenge as clinicians. And my preoccupation is largely to do with how does one work in the consulting room with lots of these issues, whether it be brought by black or other minority ethnic patients? How does one think about that? Racial hatred is a fact of life and reflects our remarkable capacity for destructiveness as human beings. It is one of the most vicious and pernicious ways of relating to others. It has even been described as a daily assault on the self, reminding us that the experience is not circumscribed to only physical acts of violence, but also the silent, deadly and insidious nature in which it operates in the world of private prejudice and institutional life. This is all behind the public veneer of tolerance. Now, when I think of racism, I think of a brutality that ranges on a spectrum from physical and verbal violence to the more subtle and potentially toxic attacks on the self that involve not only what is unwittingly said in words and gestures, but what is not said. This often creates an ambience experienced by the other that is difficult, if not impossible, to pinpoint or put into words, but has a knack of getting under your skin. Trauma, whether it is racial violence, in the form of being marginalized, devalued, or physically assaulted, results in a tear in the very fabric or protective skin of our inner and outer worlds, revealing hazard and danger. In that moment, if you're at the receiving end of this experience, it's a landscape which is hostile, echoing earlier experiences of not feeling acknowledged or contained. It ruptures our belief in the predictability of our external world, triggering anxieties and lack of trust in the protective function of the figures in our internal world. And from here, it's often a slippery slide into paranoid thinking in relation to one's safe, safety and well-being. It poses in my mind an interesting problem where it concerns the silent trauma of everyday racism, that which continually impinges on the psyche. Unconscious racism attacks and chips away relentlessly one's self-esteem, throwing into doubt the feeling of being comfortable or contained in one's skin. This daily assault on the self is often the fabric of many people's experience of having to mobilize their inner resources in the service of repairing these tears in the fabric of our protective skin, our psychic skin. It's constantly punctured day in, day out in a relentless manner. At a conscious level, one thinks it's all being managed. But this may be an entirely different matter as far as the unconscious mind is concerned, where there are deeper stirrings going on and affect our capacity to function quite unknowingly. Now, I kind of use an object relations framework to understand what might be going on internally when there is an assault on the psyche. And usually when there's an assault on the psyche, we usually attribute that to the notion of an agent, 
someone who's responsible for this. And a traumatic event is often attributed to a very noxious object. This object, uh, I call the racist object, is often experienced as narcissistic or perverse. It lacks a capacity for reflection, empathy. Its murderous intent can manifest in a wish to devalue, debase, humiliate and shame. And we can often come across these experiences as mindlessness, carelessness, lack of concern. And I kind of put all of these experiences under the idea of a racist object. Now, when I was thinking about this paper, what came to mind was a conversation I had a few years back whilst I was on my sabbatical living in South Africa. I was talking on the telephone to a man from a furniture delivery company who rang me to say he had my address, but he did not know how to get to me geographically. I asked him, was he as new to the place as I was? And he told me he knew where I was on the map but this was a white area I was living in, and he had never ventured into that part of the world. It was as if he was wanting me to understand that he was faced with an internal situation that he nor I had fully understood. This was apartheid, post-apartheid 12 years. I then found myself guiding him to where I was staying, whilst feeling somewhat perplexed at the significance of what he had just told me. But that conversation stayed with me. It was not the external geography he wanted help in navigating, as he told me full well, but the fact that he would be coming into an area where black, Indian, or so-called coloured people were not historically allowed to enter. There would be dire consequences for stepping out of line, both in reality and also one's inner fantasy life, of what might happen to those who resisted this geographical splitting that was state-imposed. On reflection, what he wanted help with was to navigate the internal geography of his mind, an area which was invested with difficult, if not unthinkable, experiences to do with being racially hated. And this conversation about my dress seemed to have signaled and given fresh life to these silent and invisible injuries that many have come to term racism. So what happens to the task of integrating these experiences into this sense of self in those who have suffered an overt or silent assault on the self? And what happens when the self is already fragile? Now I can't go into all the details of that here, but I want to focus on two capacities that I am particularly interested in at the moment. The capacity to be curious and be concerned, empathy for oneself and others, and the capacity to think freely. What happens in the racist assault, those faculties? Now in my view, what the racist object does, and I'm really using it as an umbrella term for lots of experiences of that, it seems to thrive on attacking the capacity to exercise freedom of movement in thinking and feeling, so that one can't sufficiently be curious and concerned. And so, if one can't do that, if that faculty is damaged, then you have to appeal to that faculty in somebody else. Cognitively, this man knew where I lived, but emotionally he was flummoxed. Now the question is, what did he want me to do for him that he seemed unable to do for himself psychically, internally? And that's where I'm particularly coming from as a clinician. What is our therapeutic task in the consulting room? When we meet people who are not able to articulate an experience because it's indigestible, hasn't been metabolized yet. So his somewhat phobic reaction was telling me he had become caught up internally with what I call a racist object, an internal situation that was not allowing him the freedom to think, 
he needed a third object to help him navigate this difficulty so that he could then move freely in his imagination and exercise his curiosity and do what many other people were now doing, which was coming and going from this so-called white area. Now both these faculties needed to be exercised on his behalf by first exercising my curiosity about him and his experience and be sufficiently concerned enough to help him in this small but significant way of guiding him to the address. This witnessing and experiencing of curiosity and concern in the other, in my view, creates a triangular space that has crucial implications for our therapeutic work with traumatized patients. What is too toxic to be thought about can then give way to restoring this capacity for observing and being observed in a kind of three-dimensional space in contrast to a two-dimensionality, which has only two possibilities, you're a victim or a perpetrator, and you get locked into that. Now, many years ago, I worked with a young black African man who suffered racist assaults, both physical and verbal, at the hands of his black father, who became floridly psychotic from time to time, believing that he could wash this man's black skin color and make him white. Now, this was witnessed by his mother who felt unable to intervene directly, as she had also been a victim of his violence on other occasions. However, his mother did eventually intervene and sent him away to a boarding school where he suffered more racism. Now, to say that this man's early containment was severely damaged would be a gross understatement. Not only was his physical and mental integrity severely attacked by the racist assault from the father, but the relative emotional paralysis of his mother represented another type of failure of containment. To witness and experience, but unable to intervene, until it became too dangerous. This particular trauma also linked up to his early, other early developmental failures, or difficulties, separation and loss issues. I can't go into that here, but we can talk about it later. But I was trying to think about what's the nature of the trauma. In relation to this assault, he seemed to have internalized at least three possibilities. A victim of assault, a witness too impotent to act, perhaps vicariously terrorized, and a third identification with a racist object, namely the father and other experiences outside. Now, the fact that he was sent away to a boarding school was a mixed blessing, but at least it prevented a potential homicide with the father's escalating aggression. The fear was that he would really wouldn't murder, the, murder this young lad, really. And the mother got him out of that danger. But she put him in a different kind of danger, unknowingly. Now, when he presented in the room, the consulting room, he repeated this internal culture of brutality. And what I call an internal culture of brutality is different kinds of failures of containment, holding things together. And he would reverse the relationship into making others feel vulnerable and get the therapist, get me, get others in his life to experience what it was felt like to be the victim of terror. And his history was that he would place himself in all sorts of criminal situations. So he would get caught and then often brutally punished. In both situations, he was both an observer, one might say a participant observer, but also quite impotent. He was swept along by very fast-moving events that often landed him in prison. There were elements of high drama in all his situations involving the police that echoed the brutality experienced with his father and also at school and other situations. For the patient, however, the po police were seen as both friend and foe. It was a crucial third party, 
that he wanted to both provoke but also wanted them to intervene when he started to become very, very violent. And he told me that despite all the troubles he faced in prison, in some way he was quite relieved. Now some of these dynamics were often played out, of course, with me. And there's one particular experience that comes to mind of he was coming to the consulting room and when he entered the consulting room he started shouting about his experience outside on the street of people feeling suspicious when he walked past them or clutching their handbags and so on. And he was trying to say to me, this is what gets under my skin. This is what affects me day in, day out. The gaze. And he was shouting as he was talking to this. Now, I did not feel as alarmed about his shouting as my colleagues did outside the consulting room, who were worried that maybe they should intervene because they thought he was going to become violent to me. Now, on reflection, I wonder whether the situation mirrored something in the patient's mind, his own experience of dissociating from a very violent experience, an experience that he hadn't fully digested and metabolized and could not articulate to me. The only means available to him was to repeat the scenario, these psychic dramas, with me. By my becoming drawn into this split between a sense of alarm as experienced by my colleagues outside, not in me though, and perhaps my being disconnected from a potential risk to myself, I didn't feel it at the time if the patient became violent. But the interesting thing is, as therapists, you know, we're both participants and observers. But sometimes the psychic dramas we get rolled into and end up enacting, it's hard to then think about where our positioning is in that until we have a reflective space outside. And we're only able to think about this with colleagues and thinking, what was going on here? What does this say about the patient's internal experience of being assaulted by the father and other people hearing this, his mother or his siblings? I wonder if this scenario is getting repeated here in this institution. So therapeutically, it seems to me important to listen out for the different versions of the patient's internal experience that might gradually unfold. And as it unfolds, I think it puts both patient and therapist in a very difficult predicament. How do we think about this? How do we not get caught up in it and repeat the same kind of experience that the patient had earlier? And how do we bring some thinking to the process? Now, a common feature in trauma is that the traumatizing agent punches the boundaries between outer and inner worlds, so that both collapse, and then the capacity to think is smashed up. Inner and outer realities have collided in such a way that the intrusion damages our capacity to think in that moment. In our attempts to manage this assault, the traumatizing agent locks into our psyche and touches other pre-existing fragilities in our in self. And that comes also to the surface. So when we think about trauma, we're talking about something that interacts and connects up to pre-existing fragilities. And it comes to thinking of also about earlier fractures, disorganized states. You know. If you come with that fragility, what happens when you've got these other things to deal with from the outside? Now, when the raw contents of the assault floods our mental space. It is impossible in that moment when you're being assaulted to think about what belongs, the inside and outside, and to keep any sense of perspective. Difficulties arise in discriminating between past and present. The two become locked into each other's grip. This may explain the difficulty for some survivors of racist attacks 
in the immediate aftermath to be able to discriminate between the person who perpetrated the assault and the ethnic group that he may belong to. So for example, a black survivor of an attack by a white perpetrator may find it difficult, at least in the immediate aftermath, not to perceive all white people as threats to their safety. This capacity for discrimination has become temporarily damaged. An assault on the skin can result in a potential difficulty for thinking beyond the concrete skin of other people. If you recall the delivery man I mentioned earlier, the past continued to haunt him in his difficulty in separating out what was once called a white area and now open to all, despite being intellectually aware of the facts. His reaction suggested that there were perhaps pockets of disturbance partitioned off, effectively sealing it off from conscious awareness or access, but was triggered in his (laughs) relative paralysis. But how to get to this address seems to have touched something and given fresh life to something that was tucked away, just to get on with the business of living. Now these partitions, these pockets in our psyche, have often been called psychic capsules. These are protected spaces in our mind, which help us get through the business of living. But the problem is that they keep on leaking and affecting our functioning in ways that we don't even know about. So when my patient was under the grip of what I call the racist object, he wanted to peel off his black skin. He said he wanted to make his pain more tolerable by removing his black skin from the gaze of white people. As far as he was concerned, his black skin brought nothing but trouble, both in his early life and also becoming a container for racist projections from the world outside. The external racist gaze linked up internally to his sense of fragility in being contained in his black skin. All he felt he could do was to seek a container that he saw would protect him by seeking refuge in a white skin. If I'm white, I won't get this. The problem was that this solution was as mad as his father's state of mind. A concrete identification with a racist object not only debased his black self, but this was a potentially suicidal solution. This level of destructiveness increased his fragility, not decreased it as he imagined it. Now these conflicting situations get played out with us, and it got played out with me in the consulting room, when he would try to make me feel that I was not good enough to help him, which either had to do with being too dark or too light for him. When what it revealed, really, was his deep mistrust and suspicion of becoming attached to anybody, regardless of skin colour. In other words, the problem was about the failures in the early containment and subsequently outside had become racialized. This attempt to repeat past problems with others is of course ever present in the clinical work. We expect our patients and clients to bring their dramas to us. It's the only way we can understand what's going on in the room. And I don't think it's possible not to get recruited in the dramas. I think you end up partially being recruited and you catch yourself thinking something is going on here. You try and think about how to make sense of this. Something is going on here. What it demands from us as therapists is to remain relatively robust, to continue thinking with our colleagues and in the consulting room if we can, under very difficult circumstances, how to continue thinking, being curious, what is going on here, when it doesn't quite make sense what is going on. In other words, we've got to try and do something which the client, the patient may not be able to do in that moment, which is to continue 
trying to feel and using our reaction to understand what might be getting enacted here. What is this person trying to communicate to me? There is a communication here, often in action. A difficult task to do without us becoming too anxious and being overwhelmed and retaliating. And we know that we can make comments and interpretations and so on and so forth, which we think is trying to understand our patients or clients, but may well be a retaliation. It may be because we want to evacuate our anxiety as therapists, or we don't want to feel too paralyzed, as the patient might have felt in their experience, and is trying to communicate that to you. In other words, because the racist assault attacked the patient's mind, he repeats this attack with my skin, what I call my skin container, my mind, my capacity to think. And in this way, what he does, he evacuates what was completely intolerable inside him. He feels impelled to do to himself and me what was done to him without any intermediating space. This space is what he comes to us for. It's what patients come to us for. This intermediary space where something could be thought about, could be made sense of rather than just reacting. Now I call this capacity in jargon words, but it's symbolization really. In trauma, this capacity to think things through is damaged. This capacity to think about an event rather than become the event. Symbols give us a bridge between the event and the person. In trauma, that's collapsed. You've become the trauma. You've been completely assaulted from the outside and inner and outer have become enmeshed together. Our job is to try and create a space in the room with the patient to think about it so the patient would gradually be able to have a space for themselves to think about and metabolize this experience without shooting straight into action. Back to the furniture delivery man, who was not my patient, but he was telling me that he needed some guidance. And I think what he was looking for was an inquiry about him and how things had come to be in this way. And I was reminded that despite the political achievements in South Africa, the so-called rainbow nation, the emotional fallout has a different time frame that has yet to be worked out. But what it does require, I think, is a sense of healthy curiosity and questioning that needs to be kept alive to do this work, both in and outside the consulting room. I think it's crucial for us to recover the faculty to exercise freedom to think, become curious, ask the question, not assume that you know, So we have to be able to navigate our own uncertainties. This capacity was either weak, damaged, or temporarily unavailable to this man when he was faced with reintegrating an area of his mind that became frozen in time. I'll just tell you what he said to me when he actually arrived to my apartment. He said, um, as he stared out the window, he said, you know, there was a time when people like you and I would not have been able to walk out there. And I thought this comment and the feeling of sadness that went with it implied that he had managed to separate out in his mind what once took place in history but was no longer the case. As far as this particular situation was concerned, he seemed to be in a different mental space than the one he had inhabited in the telephone conversation. He was not gripped by the experience of apartheid, but his comment suggested the beginnings of an experience that had yet to be made full sense of. Now, in my view, this process is just the beginning of a long process involving much loss and mourning, arising not only from the damage caused by apartheid for this man, but his own collusion with the racist object, 
which effectively extended the period of apartheid in his mind. This meant that he had delayed his own participation in the geographical spaces he wanted to enter, and he couldn't. Finally, my two tasks were very different with the, with the two people, but they shared some characteristics of survivors of racist hatred and violence. Therapeutically, our job is to be able to create a space and container for freedom of movement in thinking and feeling in the therapist as observed and experienced by the patient. So eventually, they can do that for themselves. This in turn brings to the surface painful issues of what has been lost through aggression by others and one's own responsibility for colluding with that level of destructiveness. Only through painstaking processes such as these will it be possible to integrate the trauma into the rest of the self or the personality. So the self or the personality is no longer defined by the trauma. I am not the trauma. I am separate from it. Thanks. That was Narendra Kaval giving a talk on what happens to the collective curiosity of the therapy profession around the area of race. Thanks for those of you that have emailed me with their comments and thoughts. These have come from a diverse range of people, black, Asian and white. If you feel inspired, why not record your comments about any of the talks or the podcasts in general on your phone or on your computer and send them to me for inclusion on a future podcast. Just to let you know, Barton is running a training in London on working with diversity in counselling on the 6th of October 2012. Aileen Allen, who featured in the last podcast on intergenerational trauma, will be facilitating the day. And if you want to attend, find out more about Barton, or send me a comment, you can email me on eugene at baatn.org.uk or you can visit us at our website, www.baatn.org.uk baatn.org.uk I hope you can join me for the next time when I will present a recorded talk from counsellor and consultant Luke Daniels who explores the issue of working with perpetrators of domestic violence. Until then, goodbye.